0: Good morning, glad you're here, glad you've come to worship with the church, hear the preaching of the word this morning. Uh, We are in Genesis 50, so congratulations, you've made it through a series, uh, through a book that's 50 chapters long, quite an accomplishment. Um, You need to recognize as you come to the end of a book like this, that um, this is not the case for every church. Not every church begins in a book and preaches through a book. Uh, many pastors approach preaching um, in the ministry of the word like, "What will I preach next Sunday?" Um, so, it's it's a privilege you have uh, to uh, to hear the whole counsel of God preached um, as the books of the Bible are preached. So, I was talking with someone a few weeks ago who was going through a difficult time. He was losing his grandmother, and uh, in the course of conversation I said, "Don't worry." Then I felt the need to explain, to go further, you know, I understand I've said something that's more easily said than done, um, explain further, and I began to think on that, and then particularly as I was dealing, it was in this text and, and pr- dealing with preparation, um, I think there's a problem there. I, I think there's a problem with worry. I, I think, think that it's uh, something that we, we kind of accept as okay. We know it's a sin. We know we shouldn't do it. And we say things like, I shouldn't worry, and you shouldn't worry. But in the end, do we not kind of accept the fact that we will? And that it's kind of an acceptable sin. I don't know. I think there's some deficiency in me that, that I maybe don't expect the person not to worry. When I say don't worry, that, that I know it's not going to happen um, and that's, that's lack of faith and, and lack of lifestyle, etc. But I think there's something evidence there. And, and we are dealing with today um, what comes in large part to inform our theology of death. How should we view death? How should we then extend that, view difficulty? Genesis 50 is bookended with death. The beginning is the death of Jacob, and the end of verse, uh, chapter 50 is the death of Joseph. So to begin, let's stand and read. We stand because we recognize it is the Word of God. Read 49, so turn a page back, 49, 28 to 33. And let's read the account of that which we see the unfolding of in the beginning of chapter 50. 49, 28 to 33, all these things, all these are the 12 tribes of Israel. Jacob has just blessed them. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable for him. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, to the east of Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought from, from, which Abraham bought, with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess possesses a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. And there they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew his feet up into his bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that as we look at your good purposes, your good purposes, even in the midst of bad circumstances, that your good purposes would be an encouragement to us this morning. That we would be encouraged to believe in your good purposes, to trust in your good purposes. Father, convict us where we are not. Because it it is not something that we do when we worry. It is also something that we fail to do. We fail to trust you. So would you help us to, to trust you this morning, Would you help us to believe and know and trust in your good purposes? For it's in your name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. So Genesis 50, God's good purposes. Perhaps death signifies yet another way that Christianity is distinctly different from other religions. When a Muslim dies, in large part, there are a few exceptions... In large part, a Muslim is terrified as to how Allah will view him. Will there have been more good than bad? It's, it's the cosmic scale, and at the end of his life, it's done. And he waits to see the whim of Allah, paradise or hell. Hinduism Buddhism seek realities that, that are beyond, that are different than life or death. In Christianity, though, it was, evidence, it was evidenced in every one of the songs that we sang that expectation, that hope, that God's good purposes proceed from death. Death is, a, is an enemy, as it is in, in all of the human condition. That's a universal truth, that death is an enemy. But in Christianity, that death has been conquered, and hope comes through death. The death of Jesus on the cross. In what other religion do you see the pain, the, the method of pain, execution, um, torment as a good thing? In Christianity, our salvation is through the cross. We look for etern- eternity beyond the grave, um, the hope of wiping away every tear, all pain being moved away, as Micah was, was praying or, or saying before before I came up here. Death is viewed differently in the Christian worldview, in the Christian context, than in any other context in the world. And so we see that that, that truth being worked out in the death and burial of Jacob as the death and burial of Jacob point to God's good purposes. Jacob's death impacts nations. First, we see it impacting Joseph, the nation of Israel. Then Joseph, verse, uh, chapter 50, verse 1, then Joseph fell on his father's face. It doesn't mention his brothers here. They're mentioned later. We assume they are mourning as well. But Joseph fell on his father's face, and that is a word picture. I mean, when you read that, you see it. And you probably imagine it happening as your mother or grandmother, grandfather, father has passed away, and you fall on their face. Wept over him and kissed him. Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. The physicians embalmed Israel. So mourning among the Hebrews was typically seven days. Um, Expressing grief over the loss of loved ones is not unspiritual or a sign of weakness. Our Lord himself wept at the grave of Lazarus. It's kind of safety valve to help us deal with emotional crises in our lives. It is okay to weep. It is not okay to lose hope. It's okay to grieve, but it's not okay to be discouraged. And this this death, God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This death of the patriarch, Jacob, is significant more than the, the death of an average person. This is the death of a patriarch. God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What now that Jacob is dead? So more than just the death of a father, of a grandfather, more than the death of, of a, a patriarch, this, this is the death of God's promise. I mean, at different points throughout the Old Testament, this is tested, right? We're brought to these crises of belief. That's why every battle the Israelites fought is significant. Will they be defeated by the Amalekites? Will the line of Israel be cut off? This is significant because God displays His wonder wonder in creation and as designer in Genesis 1 and 2, and immediately comes Genesis 3 in the fall. And from 3.15 on, God has a plan. One will be born of woman who who will defeat sin and death, who will cut off the head of the serpent. And will he be defeated? Will his plan fail? Here, as Jacob dies, as a patriarch dies, not only is Jacob dead, but now they're in Israel. Now, now they're in Egypt. They've left the promised land. They were in Israel, and they were in the promised land, and famine came, and they came to Egypt, a place where they not only survived, but prospered. But now they're in Egypt. Now they're away from the promised land, and Jacob, the patriarch, is dead. Is God failed? Is God, are God's promises failing? And then there's this reference to the field in Machpelah. The field bought from Ephron the Hittite. Now, it's in Genesis 23, 10-19. through 19. There's a significant banter back and forth between Abraham and Ephron in front of many Hittites. They're at the gate where all of them come in and go out. They're back and forth. Abraham wants to buy land and Ephron says, I'll just give it to you. Just bury your dead. Go ahead. You have it. And Abraham says no listen to me I need to buy this land and Ephron says no listen to me I will give you this land and he says Ephron finally says listen to me it's 400 pieces of silver what's that between between us no big deal and Abraham says it says that Abraham did listen to Ephron he said 400 pieces Abraham counts out 4 pieces gives it to him and now what is significance what is the significance of this field of the trees of the cave Except that Abraham now owns land in the promised land. And so as Jacob is dying, his death points to the promise. His death points to the good purposes of God. He says, bury me in that field. Abraham was buried in that place, his wife Sarah. Isaac and Rebecca, lost, no, yes, Rebecca, sorry, was buried in that field. Every time, it's pointing to the promise, right? And then, and then um, Jacob now, Leah's already buried there. Jacob is going to be buried in that field. In his death, he's pointing to the promises of God. That the field is still there, the promise is still alive, and God is still accomplishing His purpose. So death of Jacob's death impacts Israel, but it also impacts the Egyptians. So go back. Let's look at a few things as we, as we scan through verses 3 um, through, through the end of the paragraph there, 40 days were required for that embalming. For that's how many days are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him 70 days. 70 days the Egyptians wept for Jacob. They wept, traditionally, 72 days for a king. And they wept 70 days for Jacob. When the days of weeping were passed, Joseph goes in before Pharaoh and, communicates this this need to go back to the land. They they go back to the land to bury Jacob. um, Pharaoh lets them go. Verse 6, And Pharaoh answered, Go, bury your father as as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up, listen, all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and the elders of all the land of Egypt, as well as the household of Joseph, his brothers, his father's household, only children and flocks were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. So this, this impacts Egypt. And, and as they mourn seven days, that's, that's the typical time for mourning among the Hebrews, as Joseph and his brothers are mourning seven days there in, in, the, in the burying process, the Canaanites... The Canaanites, in verse 11, when the inhabitants of the, land, inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. The Egyptians were still mourning to such an extent that when, that when the Canaanites saw them, even those other people in the land said, wow, this is significant. So he impacts, in his death, he impacts Israel, and he impacts the Egyptians, and even other people. Deuteronomy 2.25 speaks to this. God says, I will make you a fear and a dread among the people. And Joshua two eight nine and 9 speaks to its fulfillment as well. When Joshua sends out the two spies to Jericho, the two spies come to Rahab's house and Rahab says, yes, we are afraid of you. You've just come. You're spying. You ha- your, your army hasn't even, hasn't even pr- progressed forward, but we are afraid of you because your reputation pr- precedes you. And so... This death impacts far beyond himself. So there's this processional to the land in 57-14 through 14 and with this great company. So this great company is coming through Jacob, his brothers, his, father, his father's household. And then ver- look back at verse 9 again. There went up with him chariots and horsemen. It was a great company. So that takes our mind to Exodus 14, 6-9 through nine, when another great company of egyptians will come out of egypt and into the promised land here a great company is coming for the morning of jacob's death but certainly when these israelites are headed out of egypt what happens when they're headed out of egypt to the promised land they come to the red sea and they start complaining right away moses what have you done you've brought us out here to kill us and instead of letting us die in egypt because this great company is coming after us so there's this significant time when it's a reminder of the next time Egypt sends a great company. But, at these different crises of belief in the book of Genesis, they're all throughout the Old Testament, but, but pertaining to the, the remnant and, and the, the, the continuation of the lineage, but particularly in the book of Genesis, as you look at these crises, there's death, but there's also barrenness. Barrenness is a crisis because this, this promise depends on the child being born. Right? One born of a woman will come. Is it him? Is it him? Is it him? What if it's cut off? Abraham is called in Genesis 12. He'll be the father of a great multitude, and Sarah is barren. Is there going to be even one child? And then different births. So many births. When you're reading through the Old Testament next time, notice how many significant births begin with a barren mother. And then God grants birth. God steps in and continues his promised line. And so we see that same thing in death. Here, Jacob is dying, but all of these significant deaths are different than the barrenness. All of these, within these significant deaths, is the projection forward. Jacob is dead, but you're burying his bones in the promised land. And so there's this constant throwing forward. Same thing with the birth of Jesus, right? It throws our eyes, not, not in His death, but throws our eyes forward to salvation. And in your death, how will you die? Consider that question now while you're not on your deathbed. That way when you're on your deathbed, you're not afraid of death. How will you die? Will your, will your death not throw others' eyes forward to eternity? To a time when, when, when you open your eyes to see Jesus face to face. Death propels us forward particularly here in Genesis toward the promise we see that it, we see that in, um, in Genesis 47 27-48-1 in Genesis 48-21 and in Genesis 49 29-33 in the life of Jacob but the death and burial of Jacob points us to God's good purposes forgiveness and trust rest in God's good purposes 15-21 through 21, the brothers fear so the brothers have been out of the picture a little bit. It's focused on Jacob. The, the brothers are there. It mentions the brothers go with them to Egypt and come back with him. But here in verse 15, the brothers again take center stage and it's the same story. A little bit different wording here. J- their father's dead. Jacob's dead. That, that's significant. But it's the same story. Listen, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us, And pay us back for all the evil we did to him. For all the evil they have done to him his whole life. So they sent a message. Please forgive the transgression. Nope, skipped a line. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of God, your father. Joseph wept when he spoke to them, when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. So there's several things that, that are interesting here. Um, Jacob likely did not send a message to them, to, for, them for Joseph to forgive them. Uh, Jacob had, the Scripture speaks of the moments that Joseph, that Joseph had with Jacob before Jacob died. Um, he speaks nothing of this. He likely would have told him personally. Um, so this is likely a, just a, a contrived effort on behalf of the brothers. Why does Joseph fall down? And please now forgive the transgression of your, servant, your servants of the God your Father. And Joseph wept when he spoke to them. When they spoke to him. Why, why does he weep? He likely weeps because he's remembering back to, to 37 verse 4. When Jacob loved Joseph, and he gave him a robe of many colors, and when Joseph's brothers saw that their father loved him more than them, they hated him. And they hated him his whole life. They hated him when, when they sold him into slavery. They hated him when they pretended he was dead. They hated him when he was sitting in a prison cell in Egypt, after he'd been accused by Potiphar's wife, they hated him when they came, when, when their livelihood, when their, when their remaining alive, depended on him. And they hated him now. They hated him now when they're contriving a plan, a plot, so that he won't kill them now that Jacob's dead. And Jacob wept when they spoke to him, even though his brothers came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we're your servants. So how will Jacob respond? Joseph. I've probably said that repeatedly by now. How did Joseph respond? Verse 19 Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God. As you meant evil against me, God meant it for good. To bring about the people, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Joseph responds to their hatred with forgiveness. Why? Let's, let's, let's look at, at two things that are, that are opposed to one another here. Joseph said, do not fear, for am I in the place of God. Look at 30 verse 2. Flip back to Genesis 30 verse 2. The last time this question was answered. The last time this question was asked. In verse 1 it says, When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, barrenness, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. Verse 2, Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel. And he said, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Last time this question was asked, it was his dad asking the question of his mom. Am I in the place of God? And Jacob did so in anger. Jacob did so in in, in self-preservation, similar to how Jacob's dad, Jacob's grandfather had previously done. The promise is given to Abraham. You'll be the father of a multitude. And Abraham says, I don't have one son. And it continues. You'll have a son. He has no son. You'll have a son. He has no son. And they, in, in an act of self-preservation, there's, there's the concubine in an attempt to create a line, to create a lineage. And then here with Jacob, Rachel is seeking to do the same thing. You have to accomplish this for me. There is no no intercession with God. There there is accusation of Jacob. And Jacob's response is not intercession with God, His, his response is anger toward Rachel. But here, Joseph is different. So, why is Joseph different? Why does Joseph respond with forgiveness? Covenant trust leads to covenant forgiveness. When Abraham was doubting in that moment, Abraham is an example of faith, but in that moment he was doubting. And out of self-preservation, he tried to continue the line. And Jacob, the same way, with Leah, with, with concubines, he tried to, tried to accomplish the same thing. And here Joseph, though, is trusting the covenant. He trusted the covenant when he was sitting in prison accused by Potiphar's wife. He trusted the covenant when he, when he was sitting in prison after the... the the baker and the cupbearer forgot about him. He sat in prison until the cupbearer was reminded of Joseph. Joseph trusted the covenant of God. Remember how Jacob responded? Joseph's response is different. So consider the difficulty highlighted in Joseph's life. Because of his brothers. Forgiveness is not forgetting. The memory brings pain. Forgiveness is erasing the debt and refusing to rehearse the sin over and over. Let me, let me read that again because I ran those two quotes together. We often say, it's a cliched saying and it sounds kind of nice that you should forgive and forget, but forgiveness, Vodi Balkum says, is not forgetting. Forgiveness is erasing the debt and refusing to rehearse the sin over and over again because if you're like me then if you're in prison you're angry at your brothers and you're responding in anger and now you have your chance and i'm acting in self-preservation if not if not vengeance i'm not acting in forgiveness i'm responding in kind but it's the work of god that causes us to respond differently to forgive and that forgiveness is not manufactured within us. That forgiveness comes from trust in God. So instead of rehearsing, instead of, instead of rehearsing the sin over and over again, instead of, instead of anger and bitterness building up as Joseph... Because there, there is a significant cycle to Joseph's life from Genesis 37 to Genesis 50. Right? He is blessed. Now there is some sin involved in, in, in Jacob giving preference to, to Joseph and, and, and different things. But, but Joseph is blessed. He finds himself in a privileged position and then comes difficulty at the hands of another. And then he is blessed. He recovers, humanly speaking, and he is blessed and receives a position of prominence again. And then he suffers difficulty at the hands of another. And then he is blessed and he suffers difficulty at the hands of another. And throughout that time, Joseph is saying, as, you, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. It's a similar response response that he had in chapter 45, verses 7 and 8. God sent me here before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. That comes from reliance on the promises of God. That comes from a mind that is set on on the promises of God. So when we face difficulty, what we cannot do is allow it, allow it to cloud our vision. What we must do is times like this resolve that he, is, that he is sovereign now and He will be sovereign then. That His purposes are good now and His purposes are good then. We must, we must situate, we must train, we must, we must resolve to, to switch our perspective such that God is in front of our face. When we see God in front of our face and we, we come against, or the circumstances come against us that are difficult to deal with, that are difficult to discern, that are difficult to even survive, then with God in our main view, those circumstances can be rightly interpreted. And we can say, God is still good. What we must do watch out for is that they become reversed. When we face difficulty, we must not allow those to cloud our view because it is difficult to explain a good God in view of bad circumstances. It is a wholly different thing to interpret bad circumstances in view of a good God. God's good purposes are for now and for then. Is this not the same theology that Paul is speaking in Romans 8.28? He doesn't say in spite of, instead of. He avoids, uh, avoids and, and sends you around or rises you above it. No, he says in these things, in, in all these things, God works out your good. Um, God brings out His purposes despite human sinfulness. Divine sovereignty and human responsibility are affirmed and both must be taken into account. The amazing truth is that although God hates every sin, because He is God, He is able to bring good out of the evil actions of human beings and the devil. So, what are we saying if we don't forgive? What are we saying if we don't forgive? We're we're not only... We're not only not forgiving, we're, saying, we're actively saying something for the unbeliever and the believer. This is helpful, Vodi Balcom. He says, for the unbeliever, we are saying that an eternity in hell is not enough. That, that's, that's significant. That changes our conversation around a, new, a news broadcast when you see that someone gets away with something. They should pay for their crime. Should they not? And we get all incited to anger because of lack of justice. To that circumstance, and then that circumstance translated in our lives. Vodi Balcom brings a, an eternal perspective, a broader perspective. He says it's not about him justice being carried out right now. For the unbeliever, if we don't forgive, we're saying that an eternity in hell is not enough. They need our slap in the face or, or cold shoulder to even to even the scales of justice. For the believer, we're saying that Christ's humiliation and death are not enough. In other words, we shake our fist at God and say, your standards may have been satisfied, but my standards are higher. Joseph humbles himself below the standards of God. Where he belongs. Below the purposes of God which are good. And he trusts in them. 45, 7 and 8. And again in 50, 19 and 20. Joseph responds with forgiveness because of trust. Forgiveness derives from trust and trust derives from sovereignty because we trust in who God is that He is both sovereign now and sovereign tomorrow. Trust God's justice. Trust in God's sovereignty. Trust in His provision. The sovereign God who spoke the world into existence. This brings us full circle. Spoke the world into existence back in the beginning of Genesis. Is sovereign over our circumstances. Is sovereign over Jacob and Joseph's death. The trials in Jacob in, in Joseph's life and in yours. And He's sovereign over us today. So, the death and burial of Jacob, we don't get bogged down there. We don't lose hope in the promises of God. Instead, they point us to God's good purposes. And forgiveness and trust rest in God's good purposes. The death and hope of Joseph anticipate God's good purposes. So, so Joseph's death is treated differently than Jacob's. Jacob dies, and it's that, it's that which happens next. Bury me in that cave. Bury me in that plot of ground. Bury me in the hope and the promises of God. that Point us to the promises of God so it propels us forward in the plan of God. Joseph, he, his death anticipates that he's not buried. He's kept for burial. Anticipates what God will do. Anticipates God's good purposes. So we see the death of Joseph in 50, 22, 24. So Joseph remained in Egypt. He and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. Interestingly, the same number, uh, same age as Joshua. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Maker, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. Just as Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, were counted as Jacob's own. A couple chapters earlier. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land that he swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In his last words, he's projecting, he's anticipating the promises of God, the good purposes of God. God will visit you and bring you up out of this land that He swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Joseph is is kind kind of like a fourth patriarch. He's nearly a fourth patriarch. He's not criticized as the others are, and he's constantly blessed by God, even as he suffers at the hands of men. And Joseph was not the promised seed, nor was he the central focus of God's redemptive plan in the pages we've examined. However, he was, by God's grace, a child of God who was a picture of faithfulness, As such, God was with him, and God was gracious toward him. Nowhere is that more evident than in the final paragraph of the book of Genesis, Lodi Bauckham again writes. So we see in Joseph's final words, here, here here as he approaches death, he anticipates God's good purposes. In 25 and 26, Joseph made the sons of Israel swear this same promise. Saying, God will surely visit you and you will carry my bones up from here. Don't leave me here in Egypt. Remember, the plot of ground is significant. Bury me there. We see that in elsewhere in, in Scripture. You shall carry my bones up from here. So Joseph died being 110 years old and they embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. So, I, didn't, I ran too long in, in the... First worship service, and I'm running too long here. But there's not a next one, so we can we have time. But um, uh, so listen. So it says it says they bombed, embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Now, in the Egyptian language, I don't know this. I read this. In the Egyptian language, there are many other several other common words for coffin that could have easily and probably would have been used here. The word that's used here for coffin is the same word that's used for the Ark of the Covenant. So. It's kind of it's neat. The word for coffin um, is, is, is the same word used for the ark. And all this time, this is a quote from a guy named Hamilton. All this time in the desert, Israel carried two shrines with him. The one, the coffin containing the bones of the dead man Joseph. And the other, the ark containing the covenant of the living God. The dead man enshrined in the one fulfilled the commandments enshrined in the other. Joseph's death anticipates. It points to, but, but it, it, it anticipates the good purposes of God. And so I'd ask you again, what I asked you when we were talking about Jacob's death, how will you die? I want my death to do this. I want my death to anticipate the good purposes of God. Your death should not, your death should not end in a funeral. It should end in a celebration of life. And that's become just a cultural thing. But it should be a reality. There's a difference there. Because you do not live... And then die and stay dead and represented as, as the guy in the coffin there. No, instead, you're not even there. You're experiencing the best worship service you've ever had in your life. You're seeing Jesus face to face. So, your death also should anticipate the good purposes of God. So, when you lie on your deathbed, don't fear. When you go through life and it's like you're reigning difficulty, don't fear. There's opportunity for forgiveness of others and trust in God. There's opportunity to give testimony that your life would give testimony of the good purposes of God. So, Hebrews 11.22. You should look at it at least if you have time to turn there now. You can. Hebrews 11.22. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. So directions concerning his bones, I got. You shall carry my bones up from here. Where's the exodus? Okay, so if you flip a couple pages from Genesis 50. Sorry, I didn't tell you. I hope you put your finger there. If you flip a couple pages from Genesis 50, you see Exodus 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob goes through the names. Verse 5, All descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. Look at the promises of God. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so the land was filled with them. All good. All prosperous. Absolutely not. The next verse, Now there arose a new king over Egypt. This king enslaved them. And they're crying out to God. And then... In Exodus 3, 6-8, through 8, God, you know, call of Moses, burning bush. God says to Moses, I've remembered my people Israel. I've remembered them. And I've seen their affliction. So this, when Joseph says, God will surely visit you. In verse 24, God will visit you and bring you up out of this land. Verse 25, God will surely visit you and you shall carry my bones up from here. You'll carry my bones up from here because God will not forget his people. God will not fail to accomplish His promises. His purposes are good, even when they look bad. Right? They've come to Egypt. That was great. Great provision of God. They were going to die in in, in the promised land because of the famine. But they come to Egypt. Great prosperity. But then 430 years of slavery. I can promise you, you will not suffer that long. 430 years of slavery, and God remembers them and brings them up out of that land. So, God will surely visit you means rescue from slavery but God will surely visit you. Turn to Luke one, sixty-eight. Luke one sixty-eight says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people. This is... Zachariah speaking, in the context of what? In the context of the birth of John as the proclaimer of the Christ. When when Joseph says, God will surely visit you, that has implications for Jesus Christ the Messiah. The one born of woman that was promised back in Genesis 3:15. The one by whom Abraham in Genesis 12 would be a blessing to all the families of the earth. The one that, that God was speaking about and I just realized we, we didn't look at it. we were supposed to look at Genesis 15, 17, and 18 where God where God makes the covenant with Abraham that I will redeem you and I will get you to this land. And I will continue the lineage until Jesus Christ is born. God will surely visit you, Joseph said in his death. And also, Revelation 20-20. When he says, I will... God, that God will surely visit you. We see that also in Revelation 22.20. He who testified to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come Lord Jesus. He will surely visit you. Still to come, still to be fulfilled, fulfilled but still a promise of God nonetheless. And He will do it. He will accomplish what He has said. So, Joshua 24.32 speaks of the people of Israel, carrying the bones of Moses. Wow. Not sure where Moses came from. That comes later. Carrying the bones of Joshua up from Egypt to bury them in the promised land exactly as had been promised. So what? The point, the question is, will you trust in God's good purposes? The death and burial of Jacob points to God's good purposes. Sin, uh, forgiveness, and trust rest in God's good purposes. His death, the death and hope of Joseph, anticipate God's good purposes. We see God's good purposes on display all through Genesis. Will you trust in God's good purposes? As we sit here now, you can likely agree that that God's purposes are good. But will you trust Him tomorrow? Will you trust that His purposes are good even as you move through times of difficulty? Maybe you're going through serious difficulty right now that, that only a few know about or, or maybe no one knows about. Will you, will you trust in God's good purposes then? Think of all the difficulty Joseph moved through. Think, think of all the difficulty. I mean, Job's the book of Job about Job's life is difficulty. And you may feel like you're in a similar situation. So Jesus was teaching his disciples, and in John six, sixty six, he had been teaching his disciples, and it says, After this many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go as way, to go do you want to go away as well? So, reworded, the question is Do you want to not trust God's purposes? Are you tempted to disbelieve God's purposes? Simon Peter answered him Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Lord, where else should we, should we go? To whom, whom, whom else should we trust? You are the one who is trustworthy. We have believed and come to know that You are the Holy One of God. Jesus has the words of eternal life. And He is worth trusting. He's the only one who is worthy. To be trusted in, He's only one who is trustworthy. And so I would in, encourage you to trust God. To, to resolve now that you will trust Him. To resolve now that you will trust Him so, so that later you'll be pri- rightly oriented and rightly understa- to understand your circumstances. Death will not get the final word. This in, in many ways informs our theology of death. But if we look at 2 Corinthians 1.20, For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. All the promises of God find our yes in Christ. Peter said, where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. So, I would encourage you. Trust God. Um. So, if, if you are far from God, if you don't mind, speak to, to those who, who, who maybe can't trust God right now because you don't feel near to God right now. Where God is far from you. You can try to trust. You can try to grasp at things. They'll only disappoint. When Peter said, where else would we go? there is nowhere else to go. There is nowhere else for you to turn. When you struggle, when you're in difficulty, there is nowhere else to go other than Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ does have the words of eternal life. Death will not get the final word for those who are in Christ. Those who die trusting God die well. Today, God's people still die and are buried in the earth. But they die with the hope that through Christ's atoning work, they will inherit the new creation. God's ancient promise of land is still awaiting complete fulfillment. And one day, when you die, if you are in Christ, then you will see the land that was promised. And you will see Jesus Christ face to face. And you will see then that He is the only one who has the words of life. And He does, in fact, have the words of life. So let's trust in Him. Let's pray. Our Father, we are grateful for You. We are grateful that You do have the words of eternal life. And we are grateful that You have sent Your Son to this place that we could know that He has the words of eternal life. That He could die on a cross and accomplish our redemption. That He could die on a cross and set into motion your mission that all the nations would see the glory of God and as we are transformed as we are transformed into into mirrors reflecting the glory of God Father may we own the mission of making your gospel known in all the earth but I pray that we trust you otherwise we will not go I pray that we would trust you or we'll be filled with bitterness and anger I pray that we would trust you or we would not be able to forgive. I pray that we would trust you so that we will follow you. In your name we pray.